Remember who you were, remember who you are in Christ, and who God created you to be. This might surprise some of you, but I'm not Mako. Uh, some of you, Mako was supposed to preach this morning, and as you know, he is ill, and so we, prayers continue to go out to him and his family. Uh, my name's John, and I'm so thankful to be here again with you this morning to bring you God's Word. Um, I pastor a small church in this city, Reformed Presbyterian Fellowship, as many of you know. Um, but after today, Lord willing, we will no longer be called Reformed Presbyterian Fellowship. We will be choosing a new name. So I appreciate your prayers, though, continued prayers for our congregation. And um, I want to let you know that we also continue to pray for you. Very grateful for this church. Uh, many friends here uh, we are so thankful for. And so we continue to pray that God would bless this church and bring many people to salvation through WSBC. Well, as a preacher, every week, every week that I start to work on a sermon, I always need to go back to the basics of sermon preparation, the fundamentals that I've learned. Uh, no matter what week it is, I need to go back to those fundamentals of how do I approach a text? How am I going to preach this to the congregation? A finished, deliverable sermon doesn't just happen. It takes study, it takes preparation. I have to go back and learn those fundamental steps over and over again. And I know that for many preachers, for most preachers, it's the same way. It doesn't matter if you're a seasoned preacher, if you're a new preacher, if you've been doing it for a couple of years. Every time you go to a text and prepare a sermon, you have to go back to the basics. How do I approach this? Live it out. Well, in many ways, in the Christian life, it's the same. No matter if you've been a Christian for a year, 10 years, now 50 years, or if you're a church that's been around for 100 years or 50 years, 10 years or 5 years, whatever it is, as Christians, we always need to go back to the basics of the gospel. What are the truths of salvation that God has revealed to us in His Word? We need to be refreshing ourselves on what those basics are of the gospel. And so that's what Paul this morning is going to be teaching us as we turn to Ephesians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is leading us through the beautiful basics of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is for many Christians one of the most beloved portions of Scripture. That's because this whole section is really a microcosm of the gospel itself. How are we as Christians, how do we go from guilt? to grace, to gratitude. That's what Paul's about to lay out for us here in Ephesians chapter 2. So I invite you now, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me 
Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10 this morning, as Paul is leading us through the beautiful basics of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, What you're about to hear now is the very word of God. Paul writes, And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Praise God for his holy word. Well, as Christians, it's extremely important today, just as it was in Paul's day, to remember our identity, to remember who we truly are as Christians. And so Paul reminds us of that. He refreshes us of our identity in this section in Ephesians 2. And so the main thing I want you to walk away with from this text this morning, the main idea that Paul is communicating to the church then, but also to us today, is simply this. Christian, remember who you were, Remember who you are in Christ, and remember who God created you to be. Say that again. Christian, remember who you were, remember who you are in Christ, and who God created you to be. It's really what Paul's walking us through here in three sections of the text. And so look again with me here at verses 1 through 3 as we see Paul explains to us, shows us who you were before Christ. And that is, you were the dead man or woman. Who you were is the dead man. You know, friends, the gospel isn't really good news until you understand the bad news. And Paul lays that out for us here. What Paul's about to do is he's about to dissect the human condition. He's like a doctor who's going to analyze your body and say, I need to get to the root cause here before I can apply the right treatment. Paul's going to analyze and dissect, really, the human condition before he can apply the balm of the gospel. And the first thing that he says here is, who you were before Christ is the dead man. Notice this. There's at least four ways that Paul diagnoses the human sickness in sin. The first way, as he says in verse 1, you're spiritually dead before Christ. If you notice that, go back to verse 1 says you're spiritually dead. All people, in fact, Paul says, Jew and Gentile, spiritually dead. If you're to scan through those first three verses here, Paul goes back uh, between these pronouns, you and we, you and we. 
Why does he do that? Well, Paul as a Jew is saying us and you as Gentiles, also in the Ephesian church, right? Two groups of people. The reason that he does that is because he wants to emphasize that no matter where you come from, no matter your background, no matter your race, your ethnicity, your economic status, your sex, whatever, your age, all of us are spiritually dead in our natural state. That's Paul's point here in verse 1. In fact, he says of many other places in Scripture too, Romans 6, for example, says there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, right? So friends, understand that. It's very important because the natural human condition is death, spiritual death. You are not a body out in the ocean, a spiritual body, so to speak, in the ocean, flailing about drowning, who's in need of help, of a life preserver. You are not spiritually incapacitated and just need CPR. Paul says you are dead in sin. Can dead people save themselves? Can dead people give themselves CPR? No. They can't. You can't rescue yourself if you're spiritually dead. So Paul analyzes that first way that we are dead in sin, sick in sin. But then he also does another way, gives us another way. He says, you're dominated by the devil when you're the dead man. Verse 2, check it out. He says, unlike physical death where you can't move or do anything, in a spiritual death you can actually still, uh, you're actually still active. Because Paul says before we're in Christ, we are dominated by the devil and therefore in active rebellion against God. He says in verse 2, you once walked in trespasses and sin, following the course of this world. What Paul means here is that when you're walking, you know, that, that the way the Bible speaks of spiritually walking in something, it means a, a pattern or a lifestyle. And to walk in the pattern of this world is saying that you sin, that's your lifestyle is a sin, you have a sin pattern without any regard for God. Now, before sin entered the world, we as human beings were created to walk with God, right? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden, it says that they were walking with God. What does it mean there? Well, it doesn't mean they are physically walking with God because God is a spirit and does not have a body like man, right? They're spiritually walking with God, meaning they're obeying His rules, His commands, They're enjoying those commands. They're trusting Him, obeying Him. They fear Him with a holy fear. But when sin entered the world, that walking with God in the garden ceases, doesn't it? Now they're walking in a pattern of sin. And so fallen man willfully follows this evil pattern of sin in the world. That's what Paul's saying here. Why do we walk this way? Paul says in verse 2, because you're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The word prince can also be translated as ruler. So he's ruling over you. That prince of the power of the air, in other words, the devil or Satan, is the invisible ruler of this world. That doesn't mean he rules everything, but he rules darkness and sin and evil and wickedness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he's the God of this world. God of sin, you could say. Well, the devil has two different kinds of schemes when it comes to ruling you in this world as a dead man. Now, one of those schemes is tempting you. 
putting evil thoughts in your hearts, tempting you to sin and disobey God. And as long as he does that, he has no dominion, no power, no rule. All of us are tempted. That's why he's called the tempter. But no human being who is completely, there is, there is no human being who is completely shielded from that kind of attack. Even Jesus himself was tempted in that way. But another scheme or pattern of the devil is once someone gives in to those temptations, then he rules them. The dead man, Paul is saying here, is that person. Not just been tempted, but given in to that prince of the power of the air. That is Satan who rules their heart. You see, the person before Christ, the person who is not possessed by Christ, not ruled by Christ, is therefore possessed by Satan. Is dominated by the devil. The devil dominates the spiritually dead. He does everything he can to turn people from obeying God. And this is the domination he, com- he used to compel Judas to, to betray Christ. This is the type of domination he used to compel Ananias and Sapphira to lie to the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of domination that he used to compel Simon Magus to try to buy the powers of the Holy Spirit. So in our spiritually dead state, we're all dominated by the devil and our wicked master. Then Paul Paul goes on here to diagnose our spiritual condition. He also says, third, another way you see this dead man is, verse 3, we're devoted to sinful desires. Before we're in Christ, we're dominated by the devil and we're devoted to sinful desires. That's what Paul says here in verse 3. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. By works of the flesh here, he means gratifying the sinfulness in our sinful desires. Paul says in other places, Galatians 5, for example, what that looks like. He says in Galatians 5, the passions of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he says. Friends, just because you're spiritually dead before Christ doesn't mean you're not active. doesn't mean your will and your mind and your body don't crave something. They do. They only crave sin. And therefore, that leads Paul to say the fourth thing, diagnosis about who we were before Christ, fourth thing is therefore you're deserving of God's wrath. You're spiritually dead, dominated by the devil, desire sinful acts and passions, and therefore deserving of God's just anger. You can see this in verse 3. Paul goes on, he says, We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's a stunning statement. Because what Paul is talking about here is the doctrine of original sin. That is, all of us, from our first parents, Adam and Eve, inherit their sin. All of their descendants, all of us, the entire human race is therefore corrupt from conception on. And therefore, no one is able to save themselves because we're all dead in sin and we all are targets of God's wrath. Paul here is really taking a shot at anybody who would deny that 
concept of original sin. And yet, maybe you have come across Christians before um, who would say that you know, we, there's some part in us that is still good when we are born, not tainted by sin. There's some piece of me or in us that is naturally good even before Christ. My friends, stop and think about that because if that's true, if there's some piece of you that does not need saving, then there's some piece of you that therefore does not need the gospel and doesn't need God. It's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's very clear we are by nature children of wrath, corrupt from conception on, in other words. And the entire Bible bears that out. Let's be clear in Psalm 51, for example, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So the moment that zygote is formed in the mother's body, you have a sinner. And so this being the case, what Paul is saying here makes perfect sense. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and therefore, God, as a just God, will not allow disobedience and rebellion to continue forever. Right? His word says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. As a just God, his justice demands that sin committed against his supreme majesty be punished with a supreme penalty, punishment of body and soul. I wonder how that hits you. Are you feeling down yet? Man, this guy's sermon is really depressing. Now, some of us, we don't like to hear about God's wrath. Some people don't believe that God is wrathful. They only want to hear about a God of love. In their mind, you see God is always easygoing, He's easy forgiving, He overlooks sin. They believe that people aren't really that bad. Right? All good people go to heaven. As long as you're a good neighbor, a good spouse, a good colleague, a good sister, a good brother, what does it matter if you worship Allah or Buddha or Jesus? It's all paths up to the same mountain, right? It's not, my friend. Just being good is not a way of salvation. It's not going to save you. We are dead in sin, and by nature we deserve God's wrath. What do we need? Well, before we get to the solution, let's just quickly dwell for a moment some more on the nature of God's wrath, because although we don't like to imagine that way, we think of wrathful people as kind of like these uh, uncontrollable people, people who are blind with anger. You think of a, of, a, of a mother who sort of flies off the handle when her child won't eat her peas. Or a boss who rages at her employees when she finds out that they're stealing paper clips. Uh, when we think of rage or we think of wrath, we think of someone like that. Well, God's wrath is not like that. His wrath is completely just. It's completely in proportion uh, to the injustice against him and the disobeying of his commands and who he is. We should understand that. I mean, we understand that serious crimes deserve serious punishment. And you know that in some countries, if you, as a sign of protest, burn a flag in front of the Capitol, uh, you could be arrested and fined or maybe put in prison. But if you were to assassinate the president of that country as a sign of protest, we understand that you not only be arrested and maybe put in prison for life, you might also be 
executed for the crime. Right? You understand the appropriate response to that crime. Friends, in an infinitely greater way, you and I, we've attempted to assassinate God as our ruler and king. So if you don't understand God's wrath, it's because you don't understand the depths of your own sin. And so yes, we need to dwell here for a moment and see how serious this is, because your sin is not a petty crime that God can overlook. In your sin, you've tried to overthrow Him. And as a just and holy God, that sin must be punished. To understand the Gospel, we must understand and believe that God's wrath is real. The Lord will shatter all rebellious kings in His wrath. Jesus Himself warned to bear fruit, we must bear fruit in keeping with repentance, warning of the wrath to come. It's only when you begin to fear God's wrath to understand that before Christ, you're spiritually dead. Only then can you begin to understand the gospel. How are you feeling? Paul's diagnosed his patient. It's not a good diagnosis. But before Christ, you're dead in sin. He's performed... Not really a diagnosis, more of an autopsy, right? Spiritually dead, dominated by the devil, devoted to sin and deserving of God's wrath until you become partakers of Christ's life. There's the bad news. Are you ready for some good news? Point number two, Christian, remember who you are. You are the alive man. You are the alive man. Look again at verses 4 through 7 here. Because Ephesians 2, verse 4, is perhaps in all of Scripture one of the most pivotal turning points. Because in this moment, Paul, really what he does is he carries us from death to life. The first two words of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, is the hinge on which the gospel turns. Paul's just finished saying you're dead in sin. But what? But God. Those are the best two words in Scripture. Were it not for God, were it not for His acting, you would remain dead in sin and under the dominion of the devil, deserving of God's wrath. But God, God did what? He made you alive in Christ Jesus. You deserved wrath, but God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man born without sin, the God-man who lived a perfect life, who only ever served His Father perfectly, Jesus is your substitute for God's wrath against sin. Because the good news of the Gospel is that for those who trust in Christ, He's taken on all of God's wrath against your sin. That Jesus died the death that you deserve. Because His sacrifice is sufficient. He rose again from the grave to new life. And now you who are in Christ, you too are made alive by that same resurrection power. And so Paul says, remember, remember who you are in Christ. You are the alive person. Paul says in verse 5, God has made us alive together with Christ. Or as 2 Corinthians 5 puts it, therefore if anyone is in, in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, that's good news. Let's take a, a closer look at what that good news is. Because notice, Paul here describes it in more detail. He says, 
there's a cause and effect to that salvation of how you're made alive. Did you notice, first of all, the cause of your salvation if you are in Christ? Verses 4 and 5, who saved you? Did you save you? Did you work hard enough to make yourself alive? You said one day, I'm going to rescue myself from sin. I'm going to free myself from the grasp of the devil. No, you didn't. Dead people don't save themselves. Salvation is by grace alone, Paul says. By grace you have been saved. Salvation is 100% a work of God. God doesn't save because how good you try to be. God doesn't even look down the corridors of time to see if you chose him at some point and therefore he saves you. There's nothing in us in our natural selves that gives us reason for hope. But grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. Grace is God's unmerited favor. And the reason God is gracious, he says here, is because he's full of mercy and love. Paul says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive in Christ. That's good news because the Bible says that sin is a debt. A debt is something you owe that you can't pay, right? As sinners, we owe God perfect obedience to his law. And every day we fail to meet that law. We can't deliver. And when we can't deliver, we can't pay up, we're in debt. What happens to someone who's in debt? If you can't pay to that bill, that mortgage on your house, what's going to happen? If you can't pay any of your bills ever, the bank's going to come or the police going to come, you're going to go to prison, if you're, that's how you're going to pay for it, right? Friends, if you're in Christ, there's no debt so great that God is not able to pay. He has shown immeasurable riches in Christ, Paul says here. Those riches are never going to run out. Who you were before Christ, all that sin, and you turn to Christ, all the sin, that debt that has built up, paid off in Jesus Christ because He was perfectly obedient for you. He never failed to make those payments, as it were. And so now in Christ, God showers you with His mercy and grace. You never need to fear that His riches will run out. They're endless in Christ. And so the cause of your salvation is not you, It's the grace of God because he's rich in mercy and love. Then notice here the effects of salvation when you are made alive. Verses 5-7. through As Paul says, whatever has happened to Christ will happen to you too, believer. Notice the effects of salvation. First of all, spiritually alive in Christ. In verse 5, Paul says, where in sin you're dead in trespasses and sin, In Christ, you're brought to new life. Just as Christ physically died on the cross and rose again from the grave, you too, if you're in Christ, you have spiritually already died to sin and risen again to new life. You experience that resurrection power even now. And so when you're in Christ, you're made spiritually alive in Him. That changes everything about you even now, starting now. You don't have to wait for heavenly power. You don't have to wait for resurrection power. It's already working in your life today if you're a Christian. You have a new identity. right? You no longer belong to Satan. You belong to Christ. He's your identity. As Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. Your identity is a Christian. It means you also have a new master. Right? Before you're dominated by the devil, he was your master. Now Christ is your master if you're made alive in him. You're no longer walking in the ways of the devil. You are again walking in the ways of God as we were meant to in the second Adam, Jesus. You also have the new ability to obey. When you're dead in sin, you only want to do one thing, that's sin, right? When you're a Christian, what do you want to do? You want to obey God's law. Even you desire. Before you're in Christ, all you can do is sin. Now that you're a Christian, you have the ability to not sin. So Paul says in Romans chapter 6, you've become slaves of righteousness. Now that you're a Christian, you also have a new mind. Your mind is no longer constantly fixed on sin. Rather, Paul says in Romans 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? Is your heavenly act of worship. And friends, that's good news. The effect of being risen again by the power of the gospel is that you are made new. You're raised up with Christ too. You're seated in the heavenly places, Paul says here. Friends, if Christ is living and reigning in high right now on his throne, and what, you're, what Christ experienced, you too will experience. Although we live in this wicked world right now, we have the promise that this isn't the end. One day you too will be glorified just as Christ is glorified. So whatever brokenness and evil and sin you see in the world around you today, as a Christian, you know it's not the whole story. In other words, you live with hope. The effect of salvation in your life, if you're alive, is you have a living hope in Jesus Christ. So today, whatever sin struggle you're fighting against, whatever physical malady, whatever emotional distress, you know it's not the end of the story. One day, maybe Christ comes first, or when you die, you'll be free of sin forever. When Christ comes again, you'll be raised not just spiritually, but physically just as Christ was, and we'll be free once and for all from sin and evil and brokenness. And that's a beautiful effect of salvation. So friends, before we turn to the last point, when you hear that, when you read that here in Ephesians, what is that causing you? And I pray what that causes in you is to meditate on and to think on and praise God for His mercy and grace shown to you in Jesus Christ. So I think Paul's application for us is, is for us in these verses, verses 4 through 7, to meditate on the grace shown to you in Jesus Christ, the richness of God's love and mercy. Don't be content to just know it. Please don't walk away today or any Sunday just knowing things about God. They need to penetrate your heart to the point where you're praising Him and thinking on them and giving honor to Him. John Owen once said, don't be content to have right ideas of the love of Christ in your mind unless you have a gracious taste of it in your heart. My friends, if you're not praising and loving God for His mercy now on earth, you're not going to be doing it in heaven. So meditate on God's love and mercy that He's shown you in Christ. My friends, that's not all. The good news doesn't stop there. Yes, you are made alive in Jesus Christ. You're no longer the dead man if you're a Christian. But one final thing that Paul teaches us here to remember now 
Remember the, create, the person you were created to be. It's the final thing that Paul wants to teach us here in verses 8 through 10. Remember who you were created to be, and the person you were created to be is the working man or woman, the working man. So following on this good news that we're made alive in Christ, Paul then teaches us who we're created to be. He says here in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now let me ask you a question. This time or your birthday, somebody gives you a gift, you didn't deserve it, what do you say? Say thank you. I heard somebody say it, right? At least I hope you do. hope you know that. Someone gives you a gift, you say thank you. Why? They gave you something you don't deserve, right? You're, you're grac- you're, you're, you have gratitude. God gives you the gift of grace. What do you say? Say thank you. Paul's teaching us here, your first act as a Christian, as the working person, is an act of gratitude. God, thank you. I didn't deserve any of that. Thank you for your mercy and grace and love in Jesus. The second act then is therefore humility. We realize I didn't deserve this. I didn't do anything. If I really meditate on the love and grace shown to me in Christ, it should humble me. If I truly knew that as a dead man, if I really hit my heart this morning, the depths of my sin, God would save me, sinner. Should humble me. That's the first work: gratitude and humility that we are to give as the working man. That people are still actually impacted, you could say, when we are made alive in Christ. To give thanks to God. You notice that even our faith is not our own work here. Some people might think, well. Surely my faith, my decision, is actually my own work, right? That's not what Paul says. He says in verse 9, it's not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You have nothing to boast about when you're a Christian, not even your own faith. Even that is a gift. And friends, that's a comfort. That should be a comfort to you. You don't have to work for your salvation, even your faith. So when you're not feeling like your faith is strong, I don't know if you ever feel like that. I feel like that sometimes. My faith is so weak. Am I really a saved Christian? Friends, what does Jesus say? If your faith is like a mustard seed, it's all you need. God gives you sometimes the faith like a mustard seed. It's okay. He's going to grow that seed into greater and greater faith. But do not doubt He's given you the gift of faith to believe in Christ. And so be grateful and be humbled by that. Then notice again, as Paul says in verse 8, he says, you have been saved. You have been saved. Those word choices are deliberate. It's not you are saved. And the original language bears this out. You have been saved is actually communicating an ongoing effect. You have been saved means something happened in the past, but it has ongoing significance for you today. That's the effect of the gospel. What Christ did in the past, 2,000 years ago, happened, saved you, but its effects are still going on today in your life and in the lives of all believers. And so, the gospel enables us to walk in good works. That's what Paul goes on to say here in verse 10. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Once again, isn't that beautiful that that walking that was destroyed in the garden with Adam and Eve is now once again possible through Jesus Christ to walk in good works, to obey God's commands, to delight in them, to trust in him, to honor him and to worship him. And so the gospel enables you now to think and say and do those things that honor God in every area of your life. As a Christian, in your job, you're now enabled to tell the truth in all circumstances, to fight falsehood and lies. As a Christian, you're now able to put to death that sin of anger that might have ruled your heart before. As a Christian, you're now able to put your hands to good work, to fight off the temptation to steal, as a Christian, you're able to love your spouse well. Now, husbands, as, as Christ loved the church, you loved your spouse. And wives, as, Christ, uh, as you submit to your husband, you also display the love of Christ. See, the gospel enables you to live differently from the world around you. Those are the fruit of our salvation. But notice here as we, as we conclude... Paul doesn't give specific exhortation. He doesn't give specific applications of what this looks like in our lives. He doesn't actually in detail point out, now what does this look like in your job or your marriage or your friendships and so on. At this portion in the book of Ephesians, what Paul is doing is he's really expounding the truths of the gospel, the doctrine, and then in the second half of the book, he's going to get down to specifics. Now, how does that apply? In chapters 4 through 6, he's going to really apply it to the lives of the church. What Paul's doing here for the Ephesians and for you today, this morning, he said he wants you to think about this. He wants you to meditate on it. He wants you to remember the beautiful basics of the gospel. He wants you to dwell on the immeasurable riches of it. Because Paul knows and when a Christian really dwells on the realities of the gospel, when a Christian deeply reflects on who he or she is, who he or she was and now is, and who they're made to be, Paul knows that when a Christian does that, they'll naturally seek to desire to live a life that glorifies God. Is that your desire this morning? You desire to live a life of gratitude in response to God's grace? And if you're truly saved, bless God for the richness of His mercy and love towards you. And if you're truly saved, you'll sing His praises every day of your life. And if you're truly saved, you'll seek to walk in His ways in every aspect of your life. So remember the beautiful basics of the gospel. Who you were, the dead person. Who you are in Christ, the alive person. Who you're meant to be the working person. Let's go to God now and ask His help to do that. Please pray with me. Our gracious God and ever-blessed Father, as they were carried along by Your Holy Spirit, we ask now that as we think on and meditate on the truths that we've just heard proclaimed by the power of Your Holy Spirit, that You'd help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them. Pray, Father, that we would not just be hearers of these words, but doers of the word as well. 
We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.